This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Seven Little Australians by Ethel Turner. Chapter 15 Three Hundred Miles in the Train. They filled a whole compartment, at least there was one seat vacant, but people seemed shy of taking it after a rapid survey of them all. The whole seven of them, and only Esther as bodyguard. Esther, in a pink blouse and sailor hat, with a face as bright and mischievous as Pip's own. The captain had come to see them off, with Pat to look after the luggage. He had bought the tickets, two whole ones for Esther and Meg, and four halves for the others. Baby was not provided with even a half, much to her private indignation. It was an insult to her four years and a half, she considered, to go free like the general. But the cost of those scraps of pasteboard had made the captain look unhappy. He only received eighteen pence change out of the ten pounds he had tendered, for Yarra Happeny was on the borders of the Never Never Land. He spent the eighteen pence on illustrated papers, scraps, Ally Sloper's half-holiday, comic cuts, funny folks and the like, evidently having no very exalted opinion of the literary tastes of his family, and he provided Esther with a yellow back, on which was depicted a lady in a green dress, fainting in the arms of a gentleman attired in purple, and Meg with Mark Twain's jumping frog, because he had noticed a certain air of melancholy in her eyes lately. Then bells clanged and a whistle shrieked, porters flew wildly about and farewells were said, sadly or gaily, as the case might be. There was a woman crying in a hopeless little way on the platform, and a girl with sorrowful, loving eyes leaning out of a second-class window towards her. There was a brown-faced squatter in a tweed cap and slippers, to whom the three-hundred-mile journey was little more of an event than dining, and there was the young man going selecting, and thinking England was little further, seeing his wife and child were waving a good year's good-bye from the platform. There were sportsmen going two hundred miles after quail and wallaby, and cars full of ladies returning to the wilds after their yearly or half-yearly tilt with society and fashion in Sydney, and there were the eight we are interested in, clustering around the door in two windows, smiling and waving cheerful good-byes to the captain. He did not look at all cast down as the train steamed fussily away. Indeed, he walked down the platform with almost a jaunty air, as if the prospect of two months' bachelordom was not without its redeeming points. It was half-past six in the afternoon when they started, and they would reach Curlewis, which was the nearest railway station to Yarra Happeny, about five the next morning. The expense of sleeping berths had been out of the question with so many of them, but in the rack with the bags were several rolls of rugs and two or three air pillows against the weary hours. The idea of so many hours in the train had been delightful to all the young ones. None of them but Judy had been a greater distance than forty or fifty miles before, and it seemed perfectly fascinating to think of rushing on and on through the blackness as well as the daylight. But long before ten o'clock a change came o'er the spirit of their dreams. Nell and Baby had had a quarrel over the puffing out of the air cushions, and were too tired and cross to make it up again. Pip had hit Bunty over the head for no ostensible reason, and received two kicks in return. Judy's head ached, and the noise was not calculated to cure it. Meg had grown weary of staring out into the moving darkness, and wondering whether Alan would notice she was never on the river-boat now, and the poor little general was filling the hot air with expostulations in the shape of loud roars at the irregularities of the treatment he was undergoing. 
Esther had taken his day clothes off and made a picture of him in a cream flannel nightgown and a pink wool jacket, and for half an hour he had submitted good-naturedly to being handed about and tickled and half smothered with kisses. He had even permitted Nell to bite his little pink toes severally and say a surprising amount of nonsense about little pigs that went to market and did similarly absurd things. He had hardly remonstrated when there had been a dispute about the possession of his person, and Bunty had clung to his head and body while Nell pulled vigorously at his legs. But after a time, when Esther made him a little bed on one of the seats and tried to lay him down upon it, a sense of his grievances came over him. He had a swinging cot at home, with little gold bars at the foot to blink at. He could not see why he should be mulcted of it, and made to put up with a rug three times doubled. He was accustomed, too, to a shaded light, a quiet room, and a warning, shh, shh, whenever people forgot themselves sufficiently to make the slightest noise. Here the great yellow light flared all the time, and every one of the noisy creatures at whose hands he endured so much was within a few feet of him. So he lifted up his voice and wept. And when he found weeping did not produce his gold-barred cot and the little dangling tassels on the mosquito-nets, he raised his voice two notes. And when even there Esther only went on patting his shoulder in a soothing way, he burst into roars absolutely deafening. Nellie dangled all her long curls in his face to engage his attention, but he clutched them viciously and pulled till the tears came into her eyes. Esther and Meg sang lullabies till their tongues ached. Judy tried walking him up and down the narrow space, but he stiffened himself in her arms, and she was not strong enough to hold him. Finally he dropped off into an exhausted sleep, drawing deep, sobbing breaths and little hiccoughs of sorrow. Then Bunty was discovered asleep on the floor with his head under a seat and had to be lifted into an easier position. And Baby, bolt upright in a corner, was nodding like a little pink and white daisy the sun has been too much for. One by one the long hours dragged away. Further and further through the silent, sleeping country flew the red-eyed train, swerving round zigzag curves, slackening up steeper places, flashing across the endless stretching plains. The blackness grew grey and paler grey, and miles and miles of monotonous gum saplings lay between the train and sky. Up burst the sun, and the world grew soft and rosy like a baby waked from sleep. Then the grey gathered again. The pink quivering lights faded out, and the rain came down, torrents of it, beating against the shaking window glass, whirled wildly ahead by a rough morning wind flying down from the mountains. Such a crushed, dull-eyed, subdued-looking ape they were as they tumbled out on the curlowest platform when five o'clock came. Judy coughed at the wet, early air and was hurried into the waiting-room and wrapped in a rug. Then the train tossed out their trunks and portmanteau and rushed on again, leaving them desolate and miserable looking after it, for it seemed no one had come to meet them. The sound of wet wheels slushing through puddles, the crack of a whip, the even falling of horses' feet, and they were all outside again, looking beyond the white railway palings to the road. There were a big covered wagonette driven by a wide yellow oilskin with a man somewhere in its interior, and a high buggy from which an immensely tall man was climbing. "'Father!' Esther rushed out into the rain. She put her arms round the dripping Macintosh and clung fast to it for a minute or two. Perhaps that is what made her cheeks and eyes so wet and shining. "'Little girl! Little Esther, child!' he said, and almost lifted her off the ground as he kissed her, tall though Meg considered her. Then he hurried them all off into the buggies, five in one and three in the other, 
There was a twenty-five mile drive before them yet. "'When did you have anything to eat last?' he asked. The depressed looks of the children were making him quite unhappy. "'Mother has sent you biscuits and sandwiches, but we can't get coffee or anything hot till we get home.' Nine o'clock, Esther told him, at Newcastle, but it was so boiling hot they had had to leave most of it in their cups and scramble into the train again. The horses were whipped up and flew over the muddy roads at a pace that Pip, despite his weariness, could not but admire. But it was a very damp, miserable drive, and the general wept with hardly a break from start to finish, greatly to Esther's vexation, for it was his first introduction to his grandfather. At last, when everyone was beginning to feel the very end of patience had come, a high white gate broke the monotony of dripping wet fences. Home, Esther said joyfully. She jumped the general up and down on her knee. "'Little boy blue, Mum fell off that gate when she was three, said she, looking at it affectionately as Pip swung it open. Splash through the rain again. The wheels went softly now, for the way was covered with wet fallen leaves. "'Oh, where is the house?' Bunty said, peeping through Pip's arm on the box-seat, and seeing still nothing but an endless vista of gum-trees. "'I thought you said we were there, Esther?' "'Oh, the front door is not quite so near the gate, is it, Miss Rule?' she said, and indeed it was not. It was fifteen minutes before they even saw the chimneys, then there was another gate to be opened. A gravel drive, now trimly kept, high box round the flower-beds, a wilderness of rose-bushes that pleased Meg's eye, two chip tennis-courts under water. Then the house. The veranda was all they noticed, such a wide one it was, as wide as an ordinary room, and there were lounges and chairs and tables scattered about, hammocks swung from the corners, and a green thick creeper with rain-blown wisteria for an outer wall. "'Oh!' said Pip. "'Oh, I am stiff. Oh, I say, what are you doing?' For Esther had deposited her infant on his knee and leapt out of the wagonette and up the veranda steps. There was a tiny old lady there with a great housekeeping apron on. Esther gathered her right up in her arms, and they kissed and clung to each other till they were both crying. "'My little girl!' sobbed the little old lady, stroking with eager hands Esther's wet hair and wetter cheeks. And Bunty, who had followed close behind, looked from the tall figure of his stepmother to the very small one of her mother, and laughed. Esther darted back to the buggy, took the general from Pip, and, springing up the steps again, placed him in her mother's arms. "'Isn't he a fatten?' Bunty said, sharing in her pride. "'Just you look at his legs!' The old lady sat down for one minute in the wettest chair she could find, and cuddled him close up to her. But he doubled his little cold fists, fought himself free, and yelled for Esther. Mr. Hassel had emptied the buggies by now, and came up the steps himself. "'Aren't you going to give him some breakfast, little mother?' he said, and the old lady nearly dropped her grandson in her distress. "'Dear, dear,' she said. "'Well, well, just to think of it, but it makes one forget. In ten minutes they were all in dry things, sitting in the warm dining-room and making prodigious breakfasts. "'Wasn't I hungry?' Bunty said. His mouth was full of toast, and he was slicing the top off his fourth egg and keeping an eye on a dish that held honey in one compartment and clotted cream in another. "'The dear old plates!' Esther picked hers up after she had emptied it and looked lovingly at the blue roses depicted upon it. "'And to think, last time I ate off one, I was a little bride with the veil pushed back from your face,' the old lady said, "'and everyone watching you cut the cake. "'Only two have broken since. 
"'Oh, yes, Hannah, the girl who came after Emily, "'chipped off the handle of the sugar-basin "'and broke a bit out of the slop-bowl. "'Where did father stand?' Meg asked. "'She was peopling the room with wedding guests. "'The ham and the chops, the toast and egg and dishes of fruit "'had turned to a great white-towered cake with silver leaves. "'Just up there where Pip is sitting,' Mrs. Hassel said, "'and he was helping Esther with the cake "'because she was cutting it with his sword.' "'Such a hole you made in the tablecloth, Esther, "'my very best damask one with the convolvulus leaves. "'But of course I've darned it, dear, dear. "'Baby had upset her coffee all over herself and her plate "'and Bunty, who was next door. "'She burst into tears of weariness and nervousness at the new people "'and slipped off her chair under the table. "'Meg picked her up. "'May I put her to bed?' she said. "'She's about worn out.' "'Me too.' "'Nellie said, laying down her half-eaten scone and pushing back her chair. "'Oh, I'm so tired.' "'So am I.' "'Bunty finished up everything on his plate in choking haste and stood up. "'And that horrid coffee's running into my boots.' "'So just as the sun began to smile and chase away the sky's heavy tears, "'they all went to bed again to make up for the broken night, "'and it was six o'clock and tea-time before any of them opened their eyes again. "'End of chapter 15 Chapter 16. Yarrahappany. Yarrahappany in the sunshine, the kind of sunshine that pushes the thermometer's silver thread up to a hundred degrees. Right away in the distance on three sides was a blue hill line and blue soft trees, and up near the house the trees were green and beautiful, and the flowers a blaze of colour. But all the stretching plain between was brown, Brown burnt grass with occasional patches of dull green, crisscrossed here and there with fences, that ran up the little hills that in places broke the plain's straight line, and disappeared in the dips where rank grass and bracken flourished. The head station consisted of quite a little community of cottages on the top of a hill. Years ago, when Esther was no bigger than her own little general, there had been only a rough weatherboard place on the hilltop and a bark hut or two for outhouses and Mr. Hassel had been in the saddle from morning to night, and worked harder than any two of his own stockmen, and Mrs. Hassel had laid aside her girlish accomplishments, her fancy work, her guitar, her watercolours, and had scrubbed and cooked and washed as many a settler's wife has done before, until the anxiously watched wool-market had brought them better days. Then a big stone cottage reared itself slowly right in front of the little old place with its bottle-bordered garden-plot, where nothing more aristocratic than pig's face and scarlet geranium had ever grown. A beautiful cottage it was, with its plenitude of lofty rooms, its many windows and its deep veranda. The little home was kitchen and bedrooms for the two women servants now, and was joined to the big place by a covered way. A hundred yards away there was a two-roomed cottage that was occupied by the son of an English baronet, who, for the consideration of seventy pounds a year and rations, kept the Yarrahappany business books, and gave out the stores. Further still, two bark humpies stood back to back. Tetawonga, a bent old black fellow, lived in one, and did little else than smoke and give his opinion on the weather every morning. Twenty years ago he had helped to make a steady foundation for the red cottage that had arrived ready-built on a bullock dray. Fifteen years ago he had killed with his tomahawk one of two bush rangers who were trying to pick up Yarrahappany in the absence of his master, and he had carried little trembling Mrs. Hassel and tiny Esther to place of safety, and gone back and dealt the other one a blow on the head that stunned him till assistance came. 
So, of course, he had earned his right to the cottage and the daily rations and the pipe that never stirred from his lips. Two of the station hands lived in the other cottage when they were not out in distant parts of the run. Close to the house was a long weatherboard building with a heavy padlock door. Oh, let's go in, Nell said, attracted by the size of the padlock. It looks like a treasure house in a book. Mayn't we go in, please, little grandma? They were exploring all the buildings, the six children in a body. Mrs. Hassel, whom they all called little grandma, much to her pleasure, and Esther with the boy. You must go and ask Mr. Gillett, the old lady said. He keeps the keys of the stores. See over in that cottage near the tank, and speak nicely, children, please. Such a gentleman, she said in a low tone to Esther. So clever, so polished. If only he did not drink so. Meg and Judy went, with Baby hurrying after them as fast as her short legs would allow. "'Come in,' a voice said when they knocked. Meg hesitated nervously, and a man opened the door. Such a great gaunt man, with restless unhappy eyes, a brown wide brow and neatly trimmed beard. Judy stated that Mrs. Hassel had sent them for the keys, if he had no objection. He asked them to come in and sit down while he looked for them. Meg was surprised at the room, as her blue eyes plainly showed, for she had only heard him spoken of as the storekeeper. There were bookshelves on which she saw Shakespeare and Browning and Shelley and Rossetti and Tennyson, William Morris and many others she had never seen before. There were neatly framed photographs and engravings of English and continental scenery on the walls. There was a little chased silver vase on a bracket and some of the flowers from the passion vines in it. The table with the remains of breakfast on it was as nice on a small scale as the one she had just left in the big cottage. He came back from the inner room with the keys. I was afraid I'd mislaid them, he said. The middle one opens the padlock, Miss Woolcott. The brass fat one is for the two bins and the long steel one for the cupboard. Thank you so much. I'm afraid we disturbed you in the middle of your breakfast, Meg said, standing up and blushing because she thought he had noticed her surprise at the bookshelves. He disclaimed the trouble and held the door open for them with a bow that had something courtly in it, at least so Meg thought, puzzling how it came to be associated with salt beef by the hundredweight and bins of flour. He watched them go over the grass, at least he watched Meg in her cool summer muslin and pale blue belt, Meg in her shady chip hat with the shining fluffy plait hanging to her waist. Judy's long black legs and crumpled cambric had no element of the picturesque in them. Mrs. Hassel unfastened the padlock of the storeroom. Such a chorus of ohs and ahs there was from the children. Baby had never seen so much sugar together in her life before. She looked as if she would have liked to have been let loose in the great bin for an hour or two. And the currants! There was a big wooden box, brimful. About forty pounds, Mrs. Hassel thought when questioned. Bunty whipped up a handful and pocketed them when everyone was looking at the mountain of candles. Homemade, my dear, why, yes, of course, the old lady said. Why, I wouldn't dream of using a bought candle any more than I would use bought soap. She showed them the great bars of yellow, clean-smelling stuff, with finer, paler coloured for toilet purposes. Hams and sides of bacon hung thickly from the rafters. Those are mutton hams, she said, pointing to one division. I keep those for the stockmen. Pip wanted to know if the stores were meant to serve them all their lives. There seemed enough of them. He was astonished to hear that every six months they were replenished. 
Twenty to thirty men, counting the boundary riders and stockmen at different parts of the place, and double that number at shearing or drafting times, not to mention daily sundowners. It's like feeding an army, my dears, she said. And then, you see, I had to make preparations for all of you, Bunty especially. Her little grey eyes twinkled merrily as she looked at that small youth. You can have them back, Bunty said half sulkily. He produced half a dozen currants from his pocket. I shouldn't think you'd mind with such a lot. We only have a bottleful at home. On which the old lady patted his head, unlocked a tin, and filled his hands with figs and dates. And have you to cook every day for all those men? Meg said, wondering what oven could be found large enough. Dear no, the old lady answered. Dear, dear no, each man does everything for himself in his own hut. They don't even get bread, only rations of flour to make damper for themselves. Then we give them a fixed quantity of meat, tea, sugar, tobacco, candles, soap, and one or two other things. Where do you keep the wool and things? said Pip, who had a soul above homemade soap and metal dips for candles. I can't see any shed or anything. Mrs. Hassel told him they were a mile away, down by the creek, where the sheep were washed and sheared at the proper season. But the heat was too much to make even Pip want to go just then, so they attached themselves to Mr. Hassel, leaving little Grandma with Esther, the General, and Baby, and went over to the brick stables near. There were three or four buggies under cover, but no horses at all. They were further afield. Across the paddock they went, and up the hill. Half a dozen answered Mr. Hassel's strange whistle. The others were wild, unbroken things that tossed their manes and fled away at the sight of people to the furthermost parts where the trees grew. Pip chose one, a grey, with long, fleet-looking legs and a narrow, beautiful head. He prided himself upon knowing something about points. Judy picked a black with reddish, restless eyes, but Mr. Hassel refused it because it had an uncertain temper, so she had to be content with a brown with a soft, satiny nose. Meg asked for something very quiet, in a whisper Judy and Pip could not hear, and was given a ruggy horse that had carried Mrs. Hassel eighteen years ago. Each animal was to be at the complete disposal of the young people during their stay at Yarrahappany, but the rides would have to take place before breakfast or after tea, they were told, if they wanted any pleasure out of them. The rest of the day was unbearable on horseback. Nellie was disappointed in the sheep, exceedingly so. She had expected to find great snow-white beautiful creatures that would be tame and allow her to put ribbon on their necks and lead them about. From the hilltop the second morning she saw paddock after paddock, each with a brown, slowly moving mass. She ran down through the sunshine with Bunty to view them more closely. "'Oh, what a shame!' she exclaimed, actual tears of disappointment springing to her eyes, when she saw the great fat things with their long, dirty, ragged-looking fleece. "'Wait for a time, little woman,' Mr. Hassel said. "'Just you wait till we give them their baths.'" End of chapter 16